Hi, we are Vintage City Church based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Welcome to our podcast. As a family, we are currently working through the book of Revelation. If you'd like to watch the live video of this teaching, head over to our website at vintagecitychurch.com. With that, let's get started with today's teaching. All right. Are you ready? How many have ever studied the book of Revelation? Okay, we're going to do it again. A couple people asked in the first gathering, are we studying this because of what's going on in Israel? The answer is no. No, we made this decision a couple months ago at least. Felt like this was the direction the Lord was leading us and with a specific focus to the letters to the early churches. And somebody said to me first gathering, oh, you think it's God? And I'm like, No. I think he gets blamed for a lot of dumb stuff, but most of the good stuff I do think is him, yes. (laughs) If you haven't been with us through a book study, we actually studied the scriptures book by book, verse by verse. I really truly believe that is the right way to study the scripture, and here's why. This is not a, what makes us different thing. This is just, I think all scriptures God breathed because that's what it says. All scriptures capable to grow us, reprove us. Help us become like him. When we just study the scripture systematically, we force ourselves into the lens of the scripture and we let the scriptures lead us instead of forcing ourselves into what I would call fun topics. At the moment we do this, we, we let go of the ability to be maybe pop sensitive or more culturally, it's less Instagrammable, let's put it that way. But I love the discipline because it lets the scriptures govern us and we're just submitting ourselves to the text. So the good stuff, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff, the hard stuff, we just, we're just gonna study it all. So we'll go through every word in the book of Revelation together as a family. If you wanna know how long that takes, stick around till it's over. That's how long it'll take. <laughs> we did the book of Luke for six years. Um, we're a little faster now, um, but speed's not the concern. The concern for me is that we are students of the text. We're taught by the scriptures. We're governed by the scriptures. And I think the beginning place as a family, I would love to have a conversation about what does it mean to be a family and study the scriptures. It doesn't mean we show up on Sunday and somebody's done the work to study for us. It means that we together are going through the scriptures. Here's my request. Read the book of Revelation. Reread the book of Revelation. Read it. Go through it. When something else in scripture comes to mind, go study it. But sit down and just ask the Holy Spirit. Lead us and guide us in this study. I love the prayers. People are like, we're praying for you. And I'm like, praying for me to study well? Why don't you pray for all of us to study well? Because that's the responsibility of us as the family of God. Part of that challenges us to let go of what I would call a, a, a cultural norm in America, which is we pick a church based on if it works for us. I actually don't think that's the biblical idea at all. And we're gonna look at seven letters to seven different churches in the early church. Jesus talked specifically to local churches. And he doesn't say to any of them, hey, you in Smyrna, it's kind of a lousy church, you should go to Philadelphia. 
He talks specifically to them, where they live and who they are. And I think it's important that we understand that. Part of going through this is to realize this is where the Lord's planted me. If you're like, well, I don't know that. Great, ask the Holy Spirit. If you don't know if the Lord's planted you in this house, then you should ask the Lord. I totally respect the decision. If you're like, this isn't the place I'm supposed to be, praise God, go find it. I want us to be rooted and grounded into a local community. Why? Do you know that the scripture says iron sharpens iron and that there's no sharpening without commitment? What we have in the American church that concerns me is a tendency, the moment somebody tries to sharpen us, we bail out and it's why we have a bunch of dull knives running around. How many have ever tried to cut a tomato with a dull knife? It's bad for the tomato and for the cutter. We need to be sharpened. Part of that happens by being rooted and grounded into a community of faith where we build relationships and people know us well enough that they can speak to things in our life. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens over time. And it's one of the things we're gonna see in the book of Revelation. So, welcome to the book of Revelation. Let's dig in. If you have your Bibles, get them out. We're gonna be in chapter one. I would love for you to take notes, especially today. Today's gonna to be a, what I would call a, a, a foundational teaching with lenses for how we're gonna look at this book. And it's important that there'll be a pop quiz tomorrow, so sleep in fear. It's just important that you know kind of a perspective to look at it. I want to set some objectives and some lenses for our study because Revelation is a book that comes with much fanfare. And if I'm really honest, I think it's one of the most misunderstood and poorly interpreted books in the scripture. That is not a new thing. The book of Revelation was almost removed from the canon and not allowed in the canon because of the propensity of people to get goofy when they study it. This is dating back in the first, second, third, fourth century of the church. There was this tendency for everyone to look into revelations for the secret meanings and the hidden stuff. For that reason, they almost didn't allow it in the canon because they felt like it led people to weirdness. I want to warn us that that's been a historical thing and challenge us not to let it happen. In order to do that, we need to let go of preconceived understandings. What does it mean to let go of our preconceived understandings? It just means I'm going to come to this study neutral without a, I know the answers. Am I saying what you know about the scriptures wrong? Not at all. Are you saying you're pre-trip, post-trip? I'm not saying any of that. If you don't know what that means, God bless you. You're more fortunate. I'm just saying, how about we study the scriptures without an interpretive lens applied to it before we get there? Which means, I didn't come from a Bible college that told me which bent to study it. I'm asking you to let go of those things, no matter whatever faith gatherings you've been in before and how it was taught, great. Awesome, we're just gonna study the text, the way the text was given, and find out what it says. We're gonna have the courage to ask questions and say, I don't know, when we don't know. Here's my promise, I won't give you an answer if I don't actually know it. I'll just say, I don't know. Doesn't mean we won't work hard, we have a diligent, if you don't know our study process here, we have a, we have a study team that gets together, there's about 16 of us that get together to study the scriptures together. 
And in that room, everybody is equal. I'm not the grand poobah of anything. We just study the scriptures and ask what's in it. And then it moves from there to a communication team, which is a little bit more refined, which is people that have had a history in communicating the scriptures. And those teachings that are built get submitted to that room. And that room says, yeah, we wouldn't say that. That's bad. It's a really fun process, actually. But because of that, it's been really well vetted. And our promise as a, as a team is we're not going to make it up. If we don't know, we're going to be like, I don't know. And I'm not going to Google to get answers. You want to get really goofy? Google, what does revelation mean? So we let go of our preconceived understandings, and we study with our minds and our hearts open to the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. I cannot stress enough. The right way to study the scriptures is to say, Holy Spirit, you're the guide, you're the teacher, will you lead us? Will you reveal what needs to be revealed? Will you protect what needs to be protected? Often, the, the leaning of interpretation for revelation is past or present or future. I think that's wrong, and I want to just state that up front. Because revelation actually deals with the past, the present, and the future. Jesus makes a statement in it that I think we would do wise, we'd be wise and we would do well to consider. He says, I was, I am, and I am to come. Reveals himself as the one who was, is, and is to come. So he's dealing with past, present, and future. Perhaps we just look at the book and go, huh, maybe the book deals with past, present, and future. That might also help us interpretive-wise to not assume everything's past or assume everything's present or assume everything's future. Are some things present? Yeah. Are some things future? Uh Uh-huh. Or some things past, for sure. So some objectives I have for us, and I would love for you to write these down. My first objective, and I want you to put it, our first objective is to understand the historicity of the text. It's a fun word, say it, historicity. It really means this. What was going on in the culture? Who was it written to? What was happening in the world at the time? Are there any intentional messages? Are there things we need to know? We look at it from a historical perspective first and how it fits into its history. Secondly, I want us to apply out of that idea, we first understand what it meant to the original hearer. The second idea is we cannot apply anything in Revelation to our lives without first understanding how the original hearer would have heard it and how they would have applied it. It doesn't mean we can't extrapolate fresh meaning that the Holy Spirit's whispered on. We just cannot do that until we've had the discipline to study the text in its origin. There's a word for that. It's called hermeneutics. I spent a lot of money and time in Bible college to, and I went through classes called hermeneutics. And it was really the discipline of how we study the scriptures. Because if you just grab a Bible, you can pretty much make it say anything you need it to say if you want it to. If you don't know how to study the scriptures correctly, it's really easy to get them to say things that aren't there. Again, don't Google, it's really weird. But we're gonna study the historical aspect of the scriptures and we're gonna lock ourselves into a contextual idea that says what it meant to them is our first lens, then we can ask how do we apply that secondly. The third thing I want us to do is to consider Revelation as a very real and relevant message for the church today, not just a message about what is to come. 
that it's relevant for the church now. I will tell you, I believe these letters to the seven churches, in every single one of those letters is something that we absolutely need to pay attention to. I think there's a poignant message for the people of God at large and the people of God at Vintage. Because while we are a part of the body of Christ, we, are, we also are a local tribe intended by the Lord to live and dwell together. So those are the objectives. I want you to draw a line, and then I want you to write the word lenses. Lenses, how many, how many have ever taken pictures and used cameras before? How many know that you can get a different image with a different lens? They're filters. Absolutely. They help you see. If you want to see the Milky Way, there are lenses that will get you there. Your iPhone won't. Snapchat. <laughs> oh, we're not opening that one. So I want to give us some lenses as we study. The first one is the heavenly lens. Revelation is revealing the culture of heaven, and if we study it this way and we allow it, we are going to begin to see things about the culture of heaven, what is going on in heaven currently, that will help us know how to worship and pray differently. It'll help us understand the authority of our king differently. That right now, currently, while we're here on earth, there is a culture happening in heaven. And Revelation helps give us a picture for it. So we're going to use the heavenly lens. The th second is the earthly lens. Revelation reveals the climate of the church and how she handles what she's facing. And this unveiling will teach us and correct us in how we process our own difficulties and situations. What do I mean by that? When Jesus speaks to the seven churches, he's talking specifically to things they're facing in real world time and how they're responding, which tells me he cares about how we face what we're facing and how we respond. And so we can look back through the things he said to them and learn from it so we can apply it to where we're going now. I would caution us, 2024 is going to be a difficult year for the people of God. This isn't a beware the Ides of March. This isn't some kind of foreboding. It's a reality. We're living in a, an incredibly charged geopolitical climate, coming into an election year. We have to know as the people of God how to speak this stuff correctly and how to shut up correctly. This third lens, which for me is the most important lens we're gonna consider, is the Jesus lens. It doesn't get talked about enough in my opinion. It's rare that we hear instantly connected to the study of Revelation that we see Jesus in a different light. We see more of him, we know more about him. But yet, Revelation is revealing the impact of Jesus Christ and the response of humanity to his disruption of earthly events and his absolute lordship. All the way through, that's what John is dealing with. To what happened when this man, Jesus, came into the earth, when he gave his life on a cross, when he rose again, what it began to unfold and how the unsaved are responding to him. So we're gonna see it through this lens. Okay, let's go. Historicity, here we begin. We're gonna answer five questions. How many have ever seen Master of Disguise? And remember Pistachio's song, the who, the what, the when, the where, the how. If you know what I'm talking about, there you go. We're gonna ask these questions. Who wrote it? Where was it written? When was it written? Whom was it written to? And why was it written? John, God's servant, is how he presents himself. 
A disciple, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 17, is credited for writing Revelation by most scholars. There are a few scholars that believe it could have been a, another man named John the Elder, but the lion's share of scholarship would put this on John the Apostle John. Now, John has a few names that he goes by. Most of them he calls himself these names, which I think is hilarious. He calls himself the Apostle John, John the Beloved, John the Elder, or the Disciple Jesus Loved, which feels a little hubris-oriented for me. Can you imagine walking up to the rest of the disciples being like, hey, I'm John, I'm the Disciple Jesus Loved. <laughs> Introducing yourself in Target to somebody, hi, I'm John, I'm the Disciple Jesus Loved. And while it's true, all of us can say that, I am the disciple Jesus loves, it's just a weird statement to say. But he introduces himself this way. It's held in historical legend or folklore that John led churches and pastored in Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor, when I say Asia Minor, a lot of us don't know where that's at. Asia Minor is what is modern day Turkey. Here's another interesting fact is these churches that are written to, these seven churches that are really the, the, the focus of the book of Revelation are held within a 120-mile diameter, which is about the diameter that would hold Fort Collins and Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's a very small chunk of real estate that this book is written to. John was actually removed or driven out of Asia Minor for his work in ministry, for the way he was preaching Jesus. He's about 80 years old at the time he writes this. Have you ever noticed when you sit down with older people they talk different than younger people. Not just the words and the syntax, but even what they talk about. Younger people are often talking about what they want to do and what they think. Older people are talking about what they've seen and what they would avoid and why they wouldn't do that. There, there's a far more intentional pastoral grace with most of them. You know, there, there's a few broken older people out there that are just critical and, and, and negative, but for the most part, it's, it's interesting. In fact, I had, a princ I had a, a principle for myself for a while that every time I found a man that was over 70, I would sit down with him and just, I, I was like 29 when I was doing this. Hey, would you be willing to just share with me the answer to two questions? What's your greatest accomplishment? What's your greatest regret? So I would interview, and I'm sure they thought I was bizarre. All of them, with the exception of one, all of them said almost identical things. What's your greatest accomplishment? My family, what's your greatest regret? I work too much. I can't imagine how much I'd have worked if I hadn't done that exercise. Because it cautioned me to realize at the end of their days, all of them said the same thing. I focused on the wrong thing. So John is writing from that lens to this young church. He's seen a lot, he's been around a bit, and he's giving them advice. There's this pastoral care that comes through this letter. Now, at the time of writing, John is on the island of Patmos. We don't know where Patmos is. It's modern-day Greece. Interestingly, Patmos, you can actually, when you're sitting on the island of Patmos, you can actually see the shore of Turkey. So he could see where he was writing. But he couldn't go there. Why? Because he had been banished. Most scholars will place the time of writing somewhere in the mid-80s AD to mid-90s AD. For our narrative, for our conversation, we're just gonna land on what is widely accepted somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. It's probably the ballpark. Under, under the rule of Domitian, if you know anything about the rule of the Roman emperor Domitian, he was the nastiest of the emperors, specifically towards the church. 
He had a hatred for the people of God, one that he had, had learned about from Nero before him, and he wanted to get rid of them. And he had a belief, knowing that he was nailing, getting to the end of the life cycle of the apostles. In fact, at the time of writing, John's the last apostle alive, most scholars believe. Domitian's concept was, if I can kill John, the apostle, Christianity dies, because this guy's the reason people still believe in Jesus. So what's he do? He poisons him, and it doesn't work. And he gets really frustrated, so he has him boiled alive in oil. Now, how many have ever fried things? You throw some oil in a cast iron, you throw that, that peanut oil in there, and you get it warmed up. How many have ever been dumb enough to forget it's hot because it doesn't look hot? You put your finger in it? Am I the only one that dumb in this room? <laughs> oil, when it's hot and it's boiling, doesn't take very long to remove your skin from your body. So Domitian drops John into a vat of oil. If you, you're like, are you sure? There's a church today in Italy that is, that is literally named the Church of Oil. It's where John was boiled in oil. They pull him out and he's unscathed. It didn't work. He doesn't have any burn marks, there's no blisters, he just has a healthy glow. <laughs> so Domitian's next best answer is, maybe if I separate him from the people he loves, I'll send him to Patmos, I'll put him under armed guard, he won't be able to talk to the people he loves, and maybe I can kill off Christianity that way. So he sends him, and John, most scholars believe John takes his nephew with him, and John begins to write this, and his nephew, who was allowed to travel because he wasn't John, could get these letters back and forth. Domitian dies, Trajan becomes emperor, John comes back to Ephesus. Brings us to our purpose of writing. John wrote Revelation to share what Jesus was showing him for the churches he was leading. Seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor, modern Turkey, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We're gonna study all seven of these. We're gonna study where they were in the world, why what Jesus said to them was uniquely specific to their location and the climate of events around them. Interestingly, they weren't the biggest churches. They weren't the only churches. Which, at first, you're like, why does that matter? It tells me something. Our king knows the goings-on of every church, and he cares about it. It tells me that what happens in this house matters to him. The way we follow him, the way we believe, matter to him. The way we stand in our city matter to him. There's a bunch of different themes that are going to come up in Revelation. I want to call one of them out. We're going to notice the number seven show up more times in this book than any other book in Scripture. 55 different times that number will show up in this book. Now, seven is an interesting number in Jewish culture. It's a number of completion. 
John's using seven all the way through this book for a purpose because he's using this book to point at Jesus and a Jewish reader would understand seven keeps coming up because it's this number of perfection or completion and he's trying to aim it at Jesus. Why? So that the reader will understand that Jesus is the focus, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the reason, he's what we're supposed to be looking at. What it does is it marks Jesus as the fullness, the totality, the perfection, the agent, and the aim of creation. We've already talked about the throne room. We've talked about the way the church on earth is handling herself. We're talking about Jesus' effect with humanity. And the last thing that we see that Revelation's gonna teach us is the overarching supreme lordship of Jesus. He's king over everything. That's really John's point in this. All right. Would you stand with me? I'm gonna read us some text. Revelation chapter one, verses one through two. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him concerning the events that will happen soon. An angel was sent to, John's, to God's servant John so that John could share the revelation of God's other... She could share the revelation with God's other servants. John faithfully reported the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, everything he saw. I want to highlight at the beginning where it says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. In a lot of your Bibles, it'll say, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's important that we call this out. You might think that seems like a really no big deal. Is it a revelation or the revelation? It's a big deal, and here's why. In the Greek... It doesn't say the, that's why it's important. But if we believe this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, all other revelations of Jesus Christ pale in comparison and fall away. If it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, it is what it is. It is something that he is speaking to the church. We can grab onto it, hold it alongside of everything else. It is a revelation. This word revelation is really, really important. For us, it doesn't carry the same importance as it would for a Jewish reader. The Jewish reader would understand this word in the Greek, which is apocalypsis. How many know what an apocalypse is? We think of it as foreboding, and that's not how they would have understood it. Apocalyptic literature was a literary style in Jewish culture that they understood. They knew exactly what it was for, Ezekiel, Daniel, and it keeps going. It was a style of literature that they knew would possess prophetic tendencies. It was going to be speaking about things in the past, present, and future. It was going to have obedience directives in it and how they were to live. And they, so what he's doing is the same thing he would do if I said to us, go get a nonfiction book. If I tell you to go get a nonfiction book, you know that I'm talking about an actual work of literature that is talking about something real that happened versus a fictionary book, which means you can go read a book that tells a story that might or might not have happened. All he's doing is giving them a lens of how to read this book, and for us, it should be the same. It's a prophetic book that's going to give us things about the past, present, future, and tell us how to live in response to those. says that John faithfully reported the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, everything he saw. I want to highlight this and I want to give us some understanding. John saw a vision and he heard speaking in it. 
He was shown a picture, much like Ezekiel seeing the Valley of Dry Bones. Can you imagine being Ezekiel translated to a Valley of Dry Bones and you see skeletons start standing up and stuff's flying on them and they're becoming people and how, do, how would you explain that? John is seeing things that he has no language for, he's never seen before and he's trying to put language to them. This is not an interpretive stance I just want to ask you a question. If you had never seen a helicopter, you didn't know they were possible, you'd never seen mechanized engines before, how would you describe one? How would you explain Facebook to somebody that didn't know what it was? Through a letter. I could see them, but I couldn't touch them. I was with them, but they weren't present. You're like, huh? John's trying to find language to explain something he doesn't understand. And so for us to consider that, we have to learn to ask questions of, okay, what was he trying to explain? He was doing his best to put language to it. We're gonna do our best to try to understand what he was saying. Chapter one, verse three said, God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says, for the time is near when these things will happen. Four things I want to give you out of that. God blesses the communication of this message. He blesses the one who reads the prophecy to the church. It's a simple truth, but I want us to hold on to it. We are blessed as a family and as a church to read Revelations and to teach it. Throughout this study, I'm going to read it over us before we study it. Why? Why not pick up blessing? It's like playing Mario. You're like, I'm going to pick up all the bonus points I can. But I want to challenge you to watch for the blessing, to consider it, and to invite that blessing. John Maxwell makes a statement, it's one of my favorite. He says, your attitude will affect your altitude. In other words, the way you view things and the way you approach things affects where you go. What happens if our attitude towards this book is to be blessed? We're like, man, this book contains blessing. I want blessing. Holy Spirit, just invite the blessing of God as we study this book. Do not fear what's in Revelations. Embrace it as a book that brings unique and specific blessing to our lives. God blesses those who listen to this message. He blesses all who listen to it. All who listen. I had never seen this before. It's a really wide net. And I love that because it reveals the heart of Jesus towards the earth. He loves to bless, not curse. Consider the fear of apocalypse and judgment that many have approached this book with in juxtaposition to the truth that Jesus is actually hardwired blessing into just the act of hearing this book. I want you to consider that your listening is bringing blessing into your life. I want to challenge you. If you have the Bible app, there's this cool feature where you can hit the speaker button on the top and it'll just read it over you. Throw it in the car, dump the radio, and let revelation wash over you as you're driving. It says, God blesses the following of this message. I love what John says. He blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says. That obedience brings another layer of blessing in this. But often we're going to approach Revelation as a book that simply describes what is to come. It's about future events. It's not. It is a book that releases the what is to be done now for us. As we approach this book with this understanding, 
I think what we're being set up for, and I love this, because I love our king, is a triple blessing. What kind of king wants to just bless and bless and bless his people? How much does that fly in the face with what we've been taught? He's looking to get us. He's waiting for that moment we screw up. Church, that's not who he is. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Blessing, not cursing, a future and a hope. His heart for us is blessing. And we're gonna study this with that knowledge and that lens. I wanna challenge you to adopt a very Hebrew mindset to this. The idea of listening in Hebrew means to approach it with an attitude to obey. I'm gonna approach the scriptures, what I hear I'm gonna obey. Instead of our very Western mindset, which is I'm gonna listen and see if I think it matters. (laughs) While it might be Western, that doesn't make it right. Because last time I checked, we are citizens of heaven first, which is Hebrew in its origin. You're like, it's not Hebrew. Well, Yahweh's Yahweh, Hebrews followed Yahweh, so Yahweh trumps that. So come at it with an attitude to hear. And the last thing, for the time is near when these things will happen. What is contained in this book is reality, not conjecture. The best translation of that would be the time is now or the time is nigh. It means it's upon us. Whether it has happened or will happen, we're gonna work to discern. But the reality is this book contains truth, not fiction. It's not some toothless allegory. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ for his church, originally to the first century, but also to us. Because when we learn how to apply what it meant to them, we can apply it to us. I would argue that this is as relevant as our studies of the Gospels or our studies of Paul's writings. It's God-breathed and it's of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can't dismiss it just because we get confused about the eschatology. If you're like, I don't know what eschatology is. It just means the study of the end times or what we think is going to happen. If you're in here and you're like, I don't know, I think I'm pre-trib, I'm post-trib, Stop. Let's just become students of scripture. Let's let the Holy Spirit lead us. You're asking me to leave my family roots. No, I'm asking you to study the Bible. And if your family roots are right when you're done, praise God. If they're wrong, have the courage to tell your dad. I don't think that's what it was. Or don't tell them at all and just enjoy Thanksgiving. (laughs) Chapter one, verse four. This letter's from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Let's pray, we'll wait for that one. Jesus, we love you. What an appropriate phrase. Lord, as we look into this book, we just see an immediate lens that you are constantly watching and caring for your church. As we study this, would you lead us and guide us? Would you give us the wisdom and the grace to not just try to figure out what's going on, but to know your heart, to be led by you, to come out the other side more in love with you, more committed to you, more rooted and grounded in you and in each other. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your time with us. If you can, we would love to have you join us at a live gathering. We are located at 1501 Academy Court in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
If you'd like to learn more about Vintage City Church, including our gathering times, previous teachings, and how to become a part of our family, visit us today at vintagecitychurch.com or connect with us on social media.